Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Does it feel like everything costs a lot more lately? The official numbers from the government confirm that feeling. The Bureau of Labor Statistics says grocery prices were nearly 9% higher than a year ago. If you add in other costs like gas and cars, the consumer price index reached a 40-year high in February. Coming up, we'll hear about the causes of inflation and how long it will last. That's all right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Native organization Indian Collective has filed a federal lawsuit against owners of a Rapid City, South Dakota hotel for discrimination. It comes after a weekend shooting at the hotel and racist public statements made by the hotel's owner. Victoria Wicks has more. The Grand Gateway Hotel and Cheers Lounge has been the subject of national attention since March 20th when its owner, Connie Urey, declared on Facebook that the business would no longer allow access to Native people. Connie Urey made her inflammatory statements in the days following a March 19th shooting at the hotel. Quincy Bearrobe, 19, was arrested and charged with assaulting Myron Poirier Jr., who was hospitalized with serious injuries. Both men involved are Native. Two days after Connie Urey announced the hotel's new policy on access, two Native women went to the Grand Gateway Hotel and asked to rent a room, according to the civil complaint. An employee refused, saying the hotel had a policy of not renting rooms to people with, quote, local identification. The employee also refused to rent a room to the other woman whose identification was not local. Connie Urey's son, Nicholas, manages the operation. Nicholas Urey publicly disavowed his mother's statements, but a few days later refused service to a group of Native people, according to the lawsuit filed in federal court. On March 22nd, representatives of NDN Collective attempted to rent five rooms at the Grand Gateway and were turned away, first by a desk clerk and then by the manager, believed by the group to be Nicholas Urey. Indian Collective is represented by Sioux Falls lawyers Brendan Johnson and Timothy Billion, who are asking the court to certify the matter as a class action. I'm Victoria Wicks in Rapid City, South Dakota. The city of Nome, Alaska has agreed to pay a $750,000 settlement to an Alaska Native sexual assault survivor in her lawsuit against the city, a former police chief and former police officer. KNOM's Davis Hovey reports. Five years ago this month, Clarice Bunn Hardy reported a sexual assault to her colleagues at the Nome Police Department, which was under the leadership of John Papasadora at the time. I was a 911 dispatcher. I felt like one of them. Someone working hard to keep Nome safe. <laughs> and they did nothing. After initially asking the city to pay $500,000 to settle with Hardy, the Alaska Civil Liberties Union filed an equal protection lawsuit in February of 2020 against the city of Nome, Papasadora, and Nicholas Harvey on Hardy's behalf. Lisa Elena of Nome, an advocate for Alaska Native women, says it's because of Hardy following through with the lawsuit that many of those who are voiceless now have a voice. Fun's bravery and strength to move forward in holding the police department accountable. It gave bravery and strength to all Alaska Native women. 
Based on the settlement announced by Hardy's attorneys Tuesday, Hardy required the city to issue a public apology and acknowledge that her reported rape was not handled properly. The city of Nome has promised that the police department will do better. But I know that the only way to ensure that actually happens is if we continue to continue the work activists in Nome started five years ago. According to court documents, the apology from the city reads, quote, The mayor and common council wish to apologize to Clarice Bunn Hardy for the fact that the Nome Police Department in 2017 and 2018 failed to adequately and properly investigate her complaint of sexual assault. I'm Davis Javi. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by the Center for Indigenous Cancer Research at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, dedicated to cancer research, medicine, and cancer care for indigenous populations. A no-charge online risk assessment tool is available at roswellpark.org slash assessme. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Affording the basics is becoming harder every day as inflation continues to creep higher. Currently, inflation rates are the highest they've been in decades, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. COVID-19, supply chain issues, surging gas prices, and a shift in consumer habits are among the factors at work. And a recent report by Bank of America reminds us that people of color and rural households pay a steeper cost during economic hard times than the rest of the population. In this hour, we'll talk more about why inflation happens and what it means for tribal economies. We'd like to hear from you. What does inflation look like in your home or native community? If you're a business owner, how does it affect your bottom line? Give us a call. Join the conversation. As always, we're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Eric Henson is speaking with us today from Cambridge, Massachusetts. He's a research fellow at the Harvard Project on American Indian Economic Development and a lecturer at Harvard University. He's Chickasaw. Eric, welcome back to Native America Calling. Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me on today. Tony Stanger McLaughlin is joining us from Spokane, Washington. She's the CEO of the Native American Agriculture Fund, and she's a citizen of the Colville Confederated Tribes. Welcome, Tony, to Native America Calling. Thank you for having me. I look forward to this discussion. And in Shawnee, Oklahoma, we're joined by Richard Driscoll. He's the director for retail operations for Fire Lake Discount Foods and the Fire Lake Express grocery stores in Tecumseh and McLeod for the Citizen Potawatomi. Richard, welcome back to NAC. Sean, thank you. Uh, thanks for the invite. Looking forward to this conversation. 
I am too. And Eric, let's go ahead and have you kick us off. I think we're all feeling it. I know I bought groceries this morning and I'm seeing higher prices at the supermarket, the online checkouts, the gas pump. Seems like everything is costing more. So what's going on? What exactly is inflation and and why does it happen, Eric? Sure. So inflation 101, you know, prices tend to go up over time. Not always and not all at the same rate, of course. But as a general matter, prices are rising. And in the last decade or so, we've had a very low inflationary environment with prices rising very slowly. That's why this recent uptick in inflation has really caught everyone's attention. If you recall, just a couple months ago in January, the reported annualized inflation rate was 7.5%, which caught all the headlines as being the highest rate in 40 years. And then the next month, February, it was 7.9%. And so we're still waiting to see what happens in March. The March numbers will be released on April 12th. And I think a lot of people are expecting that number at an annualized rate to hit 8%, which would be quite different than what we've experienced the last 10 or 12 or even 15 years. Well, normally inflation runs, what, under 2%, right? So we're like at almost triple, like what we usually deal with with inflation rates. Yeah, the the Fed, you know, the Federal Reserve Bank targets about a 2% annualized rate. So we're getting right at about four times the desired rate that the Fed tries to use its interest rate policy to sort of glide us along at. You know, the Fed has these competing uh, goals of addressing unemployment and also price stability. And the the decision so far is at about 2% a year is about perfect for the U.S. economy. Okay. Eric, what I find so confusing is that the government measures inflation in different ways. They have these indexes, right, which track prices of different products and commodities. And one one index they use includes energy prices like gas and oil. And then there's another index that excludes energy costs. And they give us these very different numbers. Why can't we all just agree on one way to measure inflation? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, what, what you're talking about, the, the economists refer to the that in the entire basket of goods. If we're measuring the, the CPI for all the goods that the BLS says, well, this is the stuff that people buy. They call it the headline CPI measure. And that has several different components. Housing makes up about 42% of it. Transportation makes up about 16% of it. Food and beverages make up about 15 Medical care is about 9%. Just those four categories get you about 80% of the basket of goods. But then, like you noted, they also report what they call the core CPI. Food prices and energy prices in particular are pretty volatile. They go up and down rather rapidly. And so sometimes economists find it more convenient to say, well, what's the core CPI? What's What's that one trending like? How does that compare to the headline CPI? And we've really seen that just in the last couple of months with, say, crude oil prices, which obviously are driving those high gas prices that everyone's noticing. Um, crude oil um, was 40 bucks a barrel 18 months ago. Then um, about 12 days ago, it was $130 a barrel. It had you know, gone up three and a half times in, in just like 18 months. Even between 10 and 12 days ago at $130 a barrel, and yesterday, I checked the price yesterday, $102. Mm -hmm. It was down $28 Mm -hmm. a barrel in just about 10 days. So gas prices probably are not going to start declining because of that. But, you know, the the underlying volatility in the oil price is really quite tremendous at times. And so this core CPI excludes that to get a measure that's a little less, less spiky, less up and down month to month. So you mentioned... One reason why they exclude 
food and energy prices and in, in this one index is because they're volatile. Um, and I get that, but at the same time, it just seems like uh, just a little bit of tricky numbers here. And it's a good way for politicians to say, oh, oh, but wait a second, it's really not that bad because when we take out food and energy, and I, <laughs> again, I just right. wish they would come up with a more simple way that, that lay people like myself could understand. But Eric, right. so, you know, we keep hearing about uh, now that you know we're getting through the, the pandemic, hopefully we've we've seen the worst of it, and and folks are back out again. They're shopping, they're going out to eat, they're traveling, and you know there was a lot of stimulus money out there. And is that really what's driving a lot of these increases in costs? Is just just a booming economy with people out and about again? I think that's part of it. The classical thought about what what creates inflation is it sort of happens two ways. One, they say, you know, input prices can push inflation up. Think about, say, your your iPhone. If the materials used to make the phone are rising, you know, all the little parts for the batteries and all that, then over time, Apple will pass along some of those prices, those cost increases to the consumer. So that increasing cost of the raw materials is pushing inflation up. And then there's the the other side, which economists talk about, which is demand pulling inflation. So, And that's what you're getting at. Like, well, there's all this pent-up demand, and now people are going to run out and start traveling again. So airline tickets were really cheap in the summer of 2020. No one wanted to fly. Here we are about two years later. Everybody's ready to get back out there. So demand for airline tickets is going to be pulled up, and it'll pull the prices up. And you've got a little bit of both of those things going on. Some of them related directly to the pandemic with disruptions to supply chains and different, you know, industries having the ebb and flow of the workforce as people got sick or, or exited the workforce entirely. And you've got you've got a whole lot of things mixing together to to bring maybe the economy back some this year as people reemerge and get back to normal life. But some of that uh, is going to be met with increased prices in a, in a whole lot of different categories. What about this war now? in Ukraine, is that having an impact on inflation? Yeah, it did, it did increase the, the rate of increase in oil prices for a while there. And I think it depends to some degree on where you are. You know, I think energy prices in Europe are very likely to stay elevated for a while because Europe depends so heavily upon Russian oil and gas production. Um, now, we might not have exactly as direct an impact for from those prices. And in certain circumstances, some some people are getting a deal because of that war. India is buying some crude oil from Russia at a deep discount because Russia suddenly is cut off from much of the world trade, and it's looking for places to place those barrels of oil. So certain consumers in the energy sector in India might actually get a, a reduction in price in crude oil. Hmm. Now, Eric... A little bit of inflation is normal, right? That's part of a healthy economy. But at what point does insur—excuse uh, inflation become worrisome? When does it become a problem? Right. I mean, like I said, I think the Fed targets about 2% per year as sort of the sweet spot for the, for the United States inflation rate. And so once you kind of start getting, you know, double that and triple that, people really start to worry. And that that, I think, lends to where we'll go with the conversation here in a little while. That's sort of a macro picture on an individual level or on a household level. You know, the impacts of inflation are, are highly variable. I grew up in Texas in a small town, and you drive a long way to get everywhere. 
if I was still living there, increasing gas prices would really impact my week-to-week budget. I currently live in a dense city in the Northeast, and I don't really drive very far very often. And so gas prices tripling, you know, I might not even fill my tank up for a whole month just because of where I live. And so you get really disparate impacts given how people live differently. I don't have any tiny little children in my house. If I had five little kids and needed to buy a bunch of milk every week, I would really feel the increase in food prices in a way that I personally don't currently experience it. So I think it's important not to not to overlook those individualized impacts of how how high inflation can really really crimp people's budgets. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm certainly old enough to remember when when I could fill up a gas tank for like ten bucks. I can remember still when when Big Macs cost less than a dollar. I still remember back in the day, folks. If if you remember what costs used to be, do you remember when you could fill up a, a gas tank for less than ten dollars? Remember when gas was less than than a dollar a gallon? Do you remember when you could buy a brand new car for less than five thousand dollars? If you do, give us a holler. Let us know, and and just over the years, how you've seen impact the impact of inflation uh, in your household budget and your family, uh, if you own a business. We really want to hear from you today. And that number to call, Native America Calling, is 1-800-996-2848. I'm your host, Sean Spruce, and we're going to be right back after a short break. A federal court decision fends off a challenge to salmon fishing rights in Washington state, and a native woman wins the title on a big time reality cooking show. We'll learn more about that and the latest in food sovereignty coming up on the menu on the next Native America Calling. กุกกัสนอตะมูปกัมอารินัตติอามิชุเปออิชอนาวาซีเอ็มเอสอีวุมตาออเอติกิตะกุมตาวุเฮจิกุอีมอนอนฮาอามอเออออฮาอิกต
their in issues that they face are jurisdictional, uh, the inability to utilize land as collateral. There's a combination of issues that Native American producers face that in some ways are going to protect them from issues that we saw in the 1980 farm credit crisis. Uh, and, and at the same time, will prohibit them from profiting as much as they could during this time of uh, inflation often increases the price of commodities. For Native American producers across the country, largely they engage in cattle operations. That's uh, ranked high, and, and if you look at the 2017 agricultural census data, a high number of cattle producers are using range and, uh, and grassland management in open range units, which while in some instances protect them from the higher cost of inputs and fertilization that uh, other types of, of cattle producers need to utilize and feed costs that they need to utilize. Uh, we see that the cost of transportation alone is going to be an impediment to all Native producers, often because the transportation lines, the production space, it doesn't exist in any country. And that's one of the goals of the Native American Agriculture Fund is that we can grow Indian country agriculture and support all rural agriculture through agricultural infrastructure development based in Indian country. Things that they had predicted earlier in 2021 are changing. And you brought up the conflict in uh, Ukraine. And Ukraine and Russia combined for 29% of global wheat exports. That's an opportunity for Indian country to step in, potentially enter those markets. Mm. Interesting. So you know, talking about these commodities, grains, beef, dairy products, so for a small native cattle rancher, how, how does that impact their bottom line when they're having to pay more to, to feed their herd and, and, and maintain their livestock? What, what does that do to their, to their business model? For all producers, higher input costs and, and interest rates, associated transportation uh, included in that um, operating costs, reduces the amount of money that you can make. If you are entering into a lease uh, and the lease prices go up, that reduces your bottom line. Uh, we, we at NAF are concerned with the also the rising food costs as it correlates to the rural nature of where most of our communities exist and uh, raising the uh, supply chain issues and the, and the cost of getting your goods from one place to another. That's another reason why rural agricultural infrastructure based in any country could be an economic driver and provide access and, and less disruptions in the food supply chain. Okay, now an, another way to look at this, while it's true that, that ranchers are paying more to maintain their livestock, but at the same time, aren't they also able to sell their beef and their other products, their dairy products or, or, or whatnot, for more money? We saw during COVID that there was a new opportunity for localized production, uh, farm uh, to table sales that couldn't exist in prior years. There was somewhat of a, a lessening of oversight from FDA and USDA uh, 
not in a negative food safety standard way, but in the in the opening of opportunities for producers to sell directly for the first time in a very, very long time. Uh, that increased the local dollar when you're not spending money to send your products across multiple state lines for production and packaging. And we saw recently that the Department of Agriculture is putting almost a uh, billion dollars towards this effort. They want to increase production space, decrease the corporate uh, monopolization. Uh, a lot of our tribal producers in, and producers across the country, but in particular tribal producers, were complaining about the, re- the price of beef going up, and yet they were not getting an increased price from stockyards and other production spaces that you have to get through in order to get your beef from from your land uh, to final production to the storefront. Uh, so again, if we can increase the amount of production space in Indian country, and we saw that during COVID, in co- during COVID alone, three tribes in Oklahoma stood up meat processing plants. And that is a diversification for all of Indian country. If we can include in our overall economic portfolio, gaming as well as agriculture will be protect, more protected during these uh, inflation and, and pandemic times. Okay, that's really concerning that uh, so many of these native producers were not able to to get these higher prices when they would take uh, their commodities to market. And certainly you underscore the importance of of the cost of oil and how that impacts these transportation costs when, when these producers are having to transport their, their produce so far. So, folks, we have a caller on the line, Jen. She's listening in East Texas online. Jen, you're on Native America Calling. Thank you so much, Sean, for taking my call. You, you're you doing such a marvelous job here with these discussions, especially uh, your two speakers. I'm totally understanding the inflation more clearly now, although I've listened to other people speak about it. And certainly, you know, the agricultural aspect should be given much more attention by our government in support of that. And, I mean, America has more more or less shot themselves in the foot by, by you know, depending on cotton and wheat and so forth coming from another country when we once produced all of our own. And we really need to get back to that. We certainly need to support our American Indian tribes. And I'm Cherokee from East Texas, so I feel very close to that and wonder if there's anything that we might do to um, demand this from our government. And I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I paid 50 cents a gallon for my gas. And the first home I bought, I paid $27,000 for it. It's worth three times that much now, just, and I haven't improved it at all. But, um, and now, you know, the cost of an automobile is $27,000. So I've seen a lot here, but I really am much more interested in seeing the Native American agriculture be supported by our government. Thank you so much for, for your wonderful speakers today. Thanks. Well, Jen, thank you for calling in. And I really appreciate that compliment. Uh, I'm learning so much here hosting the show, and I just try to improve with every new show that we do. Tony, so Jen had some 
some interesting questions. There's some concerns with regard to, you know, what support is out there to, uh, to prop up some of these native ag producers and to, to provide the resources and, and training, whatever it takes to, to get these folks, um, you know, secure in these situations when we have these high rates of inflation that are really, really just causing a lot of disruption in these commodity markets and, and their whole businesses. So uh, what are some of the, the additional resources? I know this is an area that you work in. Yeah, the Native American Agriculture Fund has an annual granting cycle. And this year, our grant cycle will open on April 1st. And applicants for our funding can, they are, um, our eligible entities are uh, CDFIs, uh, Community Financial Development Institutions, and um, those are our banks, uh, our lending arms that are derive their funding from Treasury, but they are focused in a lot of areas that we consider credit deserts. Our other eligible entities are educational institutions, tribal governments, including state uh, recognized tribal governments and 501c3s. We, we have already granted over $52 million to these entities to, to increase and support Native American farmers and ranchers. Prior to this, uh, the longest standing entity that has been in this space is the Intertribal Agriculture Council, and they uh, have a national uh, technical assistance arm and now there's a number of CDFIs that are standing themselves up as agricultural, uh, agriculturally related lenders. Uh, we also have worked with the Indigenous Food and Agriculture Initiative housed within the University of Arkansas School of Law. Uh, these entities can uh, provide assistance for individual producers, but also for governments or tribal governments or their enterprise arms that want to pursue agriculture as an economic development arm of a tribe. Uh, we have a lot of programs within the federal government. The Office of Tribal Relations right now is doing uh, a great job with some webinars and for any issues that we face as a producer and that we need changed uh, or improved upon. Within the federal government, we rely on the Native Farm Bill Coalition and they're out right now. They are going to be in Arizona next week and they're going to do national listening sessions so that we can start preparing for and formulating the request in the next farm bill. One of the issues that we see that needs significant improvement is that the opportunity for access to credit, uh, access to overall capital for our native producers, given that most of our producers are existing or operating on trust or restricted land, it's a large impediment for them to able to be able to access the types of loans and servicing that they would need because they can't collateralize their land. Um, so we have to look at alternatives. How can we stand up lending institutions uh, and federal programs to support Native producers when oftentimes the way that you survive the fluctuations of these types of environments is through the value of your land? So we're looking at that right now, and we just returned from Washington, D.C., where we met with multiple departments and, and also the FCA and Farmer Mac and how we can solve these issues. I encourage you all okay. to join our listserv where we share that information. Okay. And our, our, our caller, Jen, she shared her own experience paying 50 cents for a gallon of gas, buying a house for $27,000, which just seems so remarkable now here in 2022. Um, 
but but I question, you know, on a systemic level, uh, and obviously access to credit and, and the situation with land held in trust and, and, and some of these fundamental issues that are at play, but also on a systemic level, again, what is the solution um, for some of these native ag producers over, I mean, is, is it, are, do we need smaller farms? Do they need to be located closer or do we need to use local food sources? I mean, what are some things that we're really going to think have to look big picture at in terms of addressing some of these disparities that our, our native ag producers are facing? We, um, Native American producers don't have a lot of opportunity to expand the amount of land that they're operating on. Some of us are still working on land that that was part of the allotment era. Um, land uh, purchasing for new and beginning farmers is an issue for, our, for all Americans. Uh, but we have seen and we are encouraged by tribes' pursuit and individual producers' pursuit of incorporating lessons that they have known from since time immemorial. And those regenerative climate smart practices will enable them to survive better in this type of economic environment. But we also are somewhat protected. Um, if you have some a specialty crop or an organic crop that you want, our reservation boundaries already innately it create a boundary um, and a protective measure. Our water rights will also give us a, a little leg up during this time. But one of the impediments that we also see is that Department of Interior's leasing and their uh, and the inability of individual producers to change their lease rates in fluctuating times. Uh, to protect themselves uh, is something that we hope we can also bring to the attention of the department. We really need to allow our producers, our native producers and our landowners, the ability to protect themselves during these times through the um, through their leasing mechanisms and also their water resources. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned that a lot of these native ag producers are limited in terms of how much additional land that they can allocate for, for these operations. So perhaps our smaller scale farms and ranching spaces, are, are, is that part of the solution? Maybe just downsizing? I... Um... Depends on what you're farming, uh, what type of production space you're in, but it also depends on where you at, are at geographically and the distance it takes you to um, bring your commodity or your raw goods to the store to enter into procurement. Uh, that Those issues alone, and, and actually we are working with an entity to create data, so we have done 12 preliminary reservation studies, and in those 12 studies, we can determine the top commodities that that community should be engaging in should they want to increase the amount of agricultural production. We've also identified potential land that isn't being utilized in, in ag production at this time, and we uh, have quantified the amount initially at a loss of $155 million a year. If you look at each of the states where a reservation exists and you look at how much funding they are receiving, the states receiving in exports, uh, then look at how much of that production takes place on Indian land. And we have states that make billions of dollars and a majority of that production is using tribal land and tribal water and yet our tribes are not billionaires. 
Um, so we need to look at our agriculture and protect agriculture as we move forward um, so that we can expand the amount of production that we engage in, but also our international markets. We need more tribes to step up and uh, utilize mm-hmm. programs that IC has. Uh, they have a MAP program where they can help you sell your goods internationally. We also, the key component is standing up rural agricultural infrastructure to reduce the cost and unburden our individual producers uh, so that they can bring their goods to market. Okay. Well, Tony, thank you for all those insights and that really, really helpful background on how inflation is impacting uh, native ag producers. So, folks, uh, high inflation is often caused by this really strong economy in which consumers have lots of cash. So it's almost like too much of a good thing. If you have a question or a comment, please give us a holler. We're at NativeAmericaCalling.com. Back right after this short break. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. Thank you for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about inflation, how much more you have to pay this year than last year to achieve the same level of well-being. Rising prices for food, energy, fuel, and housing, there's still time to call and let us know how inflation is impacting you. 1-800-996-2848. That's the number to call. Also, 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's bring Richard into our conversation now. And Richard offers a retail perspective. He's uh, involved with the grocery store operations of the Citizen Potawatomi. Richard, how you doing? I'm good, Sean. How are you? Doing great. Uh, thanks for your patience. Richard, the, the grocery store, I, I think that's like one of the easiest places to see the direct effects of inflation. So, so tell us, what does it look like there in your grocery stores? Absolutely, Sean. And I think um, exactly what Eric and Tony have been speaking about, you know, that trickles down to retail, right? So um, everything they've mentioned, you're seeing at the grocery store at the pumps. Um, You just look prior COVID to today, and just like chicken breast, for instance, it's up 140% than what it was in March of 2020. Uh, Drumsticks are up 88%. You've got ground beef, bread, all 50% increases or more. And just from a year ago, diesel and grass prices are as high as 120% higher than what they were. So all of those things definitely are having an impact at the retail level. So what can shoppers do to safeguard or like combat these inflationary pressures? Like, I mean, those are some big price hikes you're talking about. Bread, chicken, these are household staples. Absolutely. And probably one of the... um, Best things they could do, Sean, would just be to, you know, make out a shopping list um, and try to stick with that. And then, you know, every uh, grocery store, and I say every tongue-in-cheek, most grocery stores have a weekly circular, right? So they put um, ad and deals on those. Um, You know, look through those ads. Uh, Be mindful of what's in there and what you need for your household for that week or the next couple of weeks. And, 
you know, use that. Some have loyalty programs, you know, and some of them are used in a way that you can use that to benefit and save on groceries or gas. Um, you need to take advantage of all those um, opportunities because they're out there for the purpose of, you know, saving you money if you use them on a, on a consistent basis. Yeah, I see those. And then I always remember, I'm going to take this to the store with me. And then something happens, I always forget them. But I know when I do remember those coupons, I can definitely save money. Richard, what about generic brands? Are, are they being impacted by inflation the same as the the more high profile brands that we of products and food, food products that we buy? Yeah, Sean, they are. Um, but however, you know, national brands are always going to be a premium price compared to store brands. So our store brand, for instance, is Food Club or Simply Done. And when you compare those um, to a national brand like a Del Monte vegetable versus a Food Club vegetable, um, you'll see a generally a tremendous amount in pricing difference. And what we're seeing is our store brands are increasing uh, about 30 to 40% more sales than what we were doing prior to COVID. So that is another avenue where you can really kind of save some money as trading down, if you will. But for the most part, the quality on store brands has increased tremendously over the course of the last five or 10 years. Um, so you're really not giving us that much quality. And in some cases, you might actually be, be getting in the same amount or even maybe better quality than some of the national brands. Yeah, I, I noticed some really, really good good generic stuff. We buy a lot of generics here in our house. Richard, are you seeing uh, your customers, are their buying habits changing because of these rising prices? Yeah, they are, Sean. I mean, you, you just look at it. Um, for the most part, um, wages are, haven't kept up with inflation, right? Um, and, you know, everybody's struggling to find help. I don't, I don't think that's been a, a major topic that we've talked about. So we've increased our wages as well as our manufacturers, and all of those end up being a factor in inflation itself, and it trickles down. So, you know, when people are coming in, you, they just got to kind of uh, be be mindful that they are going to be increased. Hopefully, um, this is just a temporary fix and they'll start to come back down to some degree. Uh, but having a strategy in place when you shop is probably the biggest key. You know, um, we love when people come in and shop and, and, you know, they buy things from an end cap and all those other kind of things. But you can uh, relieve some of that if you really kind of make a shopping list and you try to stick to it. Well, Richard, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the higher wages because uh, producer Andy Murphy just sent me a note, and we actually had somebody comment uh, online about how wages have impacted, have been impacted by all these inflationary pressures. And uh, the the person commenting mentioned that remembering when when a t typical job, the minimum wage was like two dollars an hour, and, and now you know it's it's much higher. So, Richard. Um, are you are you having to pay folks significantly more now um, to keep the businesses open? Yeah, here in Oklahoma, and Sean, you kind of uh, touched on a little bit. So when I when I got in the workforce in the mid '80s, you know, my minimum wage was three thirty five. Um, the the federal minimum wage right now is, I believe, somewhere around seven seventy five. The um, grocery stores have a minimum wage of two sets one. Um, starting out in just a sacker position is around 12, but most of the other positions uh, pay $12 an hour as a starting out position, which is considerably higher than it is for minimum wage federally. But, you know, we're still competing against a number of fast food restaurants and just other manufacturers here within our county who are struggling to find help too. And so those factors continue to grow. 
and just to attract help, you know, we may we're already looking at the fact that we may need to start increasing that minimum wage even further. So when that happens, obviously, the more we have to pay, the more that we have to consider the rise in what we uh, charge for the groceries in order just to keep pace with inflation. Right, right. It all trickles down. And, and, and Richard, you know, you hear so much talk about a livable wage. And I'm curious, you mentioned $12 an hour, what some of your employees start at. Is that a livable wage there in the communities in Oklahoma that your businesses are located? I, w- I would say it's on the cusp of it for some degree, Sean. Uh, you know, we are, we're one of the, we're in rural Oklahoma, so we, we don't have like a a lot of the prices that you might see in New York City, California, and, and that, but it's still a struggle even at $12 an hour to make a, a, a livable wage, and that's why we're trying to uh, reevaluate that, see if we need to move it up. And it's, you know, due to all the pressures that's happening within the market, you know, when you see prices jump over 100 and plus percent in two years, I mean, that directly affects how much people can spend on just the basic needs that they need to have. Okay. Eric, could you comment on that? Just the overall impact and in, in these fluctuating w- wages, how, how does that work into this calculus of inflation measuring that we talked about earlier? Yeah, I think, I think we're, we're experiencing exactly what Richard said, where the wage increases, you know, looked kind of robust at first. When the economy started opening back up, people started saying, well, you know, we've had a number of people leave the workforce. And so employees, including those at the lower wage levels, are going to be able to sort of extract more and and might be better off. But that was so quickly superseded by the rate of change of the prices that those people, you know, we were talking about the headline CPI and the core CPI. And you were saying, well, why can't we just agree on one? You know, it's kind of if they take food and energy out of the core CPI, that still doesn't mean that you and I don't have to buy food and energy. So when these overall, that sort of headline number is outpacing your wage gains, you as the the consumer are actually losing ground month to month to month, even if you get what seems like a good raise in your paycheck. Mm-hmm. Well, and with inflation going up as quickly as it is, I, I would imagine it's hard to keep up, right? Uh, with wages, like they're it's just they're just behind the curve. It's it's all happening so quickly, right? And you know, with expectations of maybe an eight percent annualized number next month, not not many lower wage workers are going to get an eight percent increase in a given year. So, you know, the one one thing I did look at yesterday because I was a little bit curious preparing for the show today is what what crude oil prices look like out in the futures market going forward. So as I think I mentioned, if you bought bought a barrel of crude oil yesterday for for delivery next month, it was at $102 a barrel. If you look six or seven months ahead to, say, November of this year, the expectation is you can buy futures right now for $89 a barrel. If you look again a year ahead to April of 2023, you can buy oil futures at $81 a barrel. So at least in the oil market, the futures market seems to be indicating that there might be some price, you know, relief coming our way. And, and that one big important component of crude oil prices and energy and gasoline. So that's maybe a good sign. We can all hope hope oh. that that translates into a moderation of the inflation rate. Okay. And, and Eric, since you're throwing all these numbers out there with oil prices and what, I'm going to have to put you on the spot here, buddy. And uh, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but I want to ask you where I'm at here. Eh, we're paying about four bucks a gallon at the pump. 
what do you think later in the year come come fall come the holidays what's the the average price of gas going to be here in the US it's really hard to know i mean i think we're still looking at some increases through the summer you know people do a lot of driving in the summer and that's going to keep that demand up i don't think that oil prices are going to moderate so rapidly that the prices at the pump will fall very quickly i think we're about four and a half bucks a gallon here in the boston area last week when i last looked and I'd be pleasantly surprised if we're about the same level, four to four and a half bucks by the end of this calendar year. I'd be I'd be pleased if if the rate of increase, you know, <laughs> alleviates. Okay. Well, it certainly sounds like uh, we're going to start paying more before we start paying less for a lot of these products. Richard, you know, we've been talking a lot about how businesses are, are raising prices, right? And, paying more for food and, and things like that. But businesses have other ways of passing these inflationary costs on to consumers. And there, there's something called shrinkflation. And I see it all the time in stores where you have a, a product that I've been buying for years and all of a sudden I notice it's now being packaged in a smaller container or, or less weight. Uh, can you talk about that? It seems so sneaky. Absolutely. It is, Sean, and uh, manufacturers are doing that more and more. In fact, I just read an article today that uh, they're they're saying Doritos will have five fewer chips in it now because of <laughs> just what you're talking about, shrinkflation. So, you know, I, I think Frito-Lay may have coined that years ago by, um, you know, half their bag is air rather than chips in there. But, yeah, that's happening across the board. We're seeing more and more manufacturers, instead of actually raising their price, they're just cutting down on how many um, ounces or pounds they might be putting in a product. You know, we uh, got notification that Gatorade um, has been at a 32-ounce bottle for, uh, you know, years, and now they're going to a 30-ounce bottle. So that's uh, that's exactly how they get away with it most of the time. With You don't notice very much of a price increase or a decrease, so to speak, because they are just cutting back on how much they're putting in a, in their product. So you're telling me, Richard, I'm going to have to start counting every individual chip in a bag of yeah. Doritos to make sure I'm not getting shorted here. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I, I know that, <laughs> Richard, I know a lot of retailers, uh, what they do is they actually list, but it's small. It's there beneath the product on the shelf usually. It'll show actually what the value of the, the product is, you know, the price per ounce or the price right. per per weight or something like that. And, but I, I think customers don't always look at that stuff, right? Right. You're exactly right, Sean. It, you know, they don't really look at it, but if you do, you know, pay attention to it, you know, looking at it once and just the first time, you may not see the difference. But as you look at to it over time and you look at the price per ounce, that really kind of tells you, you know, if it's gone up or down um, based upon, you know, a change in the size of uh, the product. And obviously, if they are keeping the price the same, but they're putting less into what they're making and selling it to consumers, then it's obviously going to be a higher price per ounce or pound that you do pay. That's correct. Right, right. And then I'm even seeing even like shadier ways, or not shady, but just they're, they're hiding these costs more and more. Like, for example, now there's a lot of hotels and they'll only change sheets in between guests, right? So no more uh, nightly sheets being changed. Uh, or they're like canceling free airport shuttles, right? That's like a whole nother way to pass these inflation costs on to consumers because ultimately, you know, you're still... Right 
paying more in a sense. Or I noticed a lot of restaurants, they're tacking on like these 3% COVID surcharges and things like right. that. So it just seems like they're going to get us one way or the other, right? Yeah. And you, I mean, you speak about that. So, you know, that's another thing is we just got a um, notification from our field uh, distributor that supplies our fuel to our convenience stores. And they said, you know, with the price of diesel being where it's at, we're going to have to charge a 40% surcharge for delivery. So, you know, obviously a 40% more surcharge to us requires us to pass some or all of that on to the consumer when it comes into something like that. We're seeing more and more uh, manufacturers do that with um, since the price of diesel is so high, they're adding a surcharge onto their invoice. You know, and then a lot of uh, manufacturers, Sean, you know, with, with what's been happening with the shortage of workers and then when some of these plants were shut down for such a long period of time, you know, it, it caused the supply chain to get backlogged. And some of them have just had a tremendous hard time getting caught up. We've been at Without Biscuits now for the most part for going on maybe about six weeks. We'll get some refrigerated biscuits. We'll get a case or two, and they're gone immediately the day that we get them. So Pillsbury, some of the store brands, they're having trouble, you know, making, getting these biscuits. So when that happens and there's a shortage of product, um, you know, typically we get deals um, from manufacturers that we pass on to the consumers. Well, then they pull those deals, and there's no deals to be had, so... That's another way that they end up um, causing prices to in, uh, increase is because there's no deals to advertise them to put it out. So it stays at regular or higher price just all the time. Okay. Well, folks, talking about inflation, uh, clipping coupons, looking for those deals. I also think maybe a, a good idea might be to to uh, sock a few extra bucks away to uh, inflate your savings cushion to help combat inflation. Uh, that's all the time we have for today's show. And as we wrap up, I, I'd like to thank our guests, Eric Henson, Tony Stanger McLaughlin, and Richard Driscoll for a thoughtful discussion on inflation and its impact on Native communities. Join us next week. We're doing it all over again with another lineup of discussions about Indigenous issues and topics. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producer is Andy Murphy. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Show McPaulin is the digital producer. Production help this week by Luella Bryn. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director. And Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Kiwanek Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. And I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Have a great weekend. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org.
Looking to get your high school diploma? Southwestern Indian Polytechnic Institute offers Native Americans ages 18 or older training and preparation courses for the high school equivalency diplomas in person and online beginning May 4th. All attendance and testing fees for this program are waived and resources will be available to help with supplies and living expenses. Space is limited. Application deadline is April 8th. More by calling 505-382-4287 or at sipi.edu who support this show. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.